Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. If you have a Bible, please open it to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at specifically verses 18 and 19 today. We're going to look at the dimensions of God's love, the size, the shape, the weight, the meaning of these words of Paul that are so mysterious. But before we do that, let us pray together. Grant, Almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness, and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words. May we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name, and thus present ourselves in all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and eternal glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, and amen. 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 Now, I described last week the word of God at times being like stalks of new grain. When you gather in the sheaves, you have to sift and rub out and roll and crush prepping carefully for consumption wheat that grows in the fields. You can't just take the wheat out of the field and start chewing on it. That, that is on one level possible, but not necessarily what God intended. If you guys came here next week and all I had was piled here instead of bread is just some sheaves of grain, you would think that there was a problem. Sometimes the word of God is like that. We have to work it. We have to knead it. We have to prep it. We have to slowly consider it. The meditative approach to God's word is the best way to feed upon it, I would argue. Paul is giving us here a prayer report. That's what he was telling us last week. And he's telling us things, he's giving us things that are so ponderous that we have to go very slowly to understand them. If we go too quickly, if we just jump from, from, from word to word, move on from verse to verse, we miss the size and scope of what he's telling us here. Now, I'm going to go back. I'm going to, I'm going to start just a little uh, further back than, than we're going to look at today, but I want to just remind you guys of the context here. This is what Paul is saying to the Christians in Ephesus and in nearby towns. He says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now that is ponderous. He wants us to comprehend something that he himself is saying is beyond knowledge. He wants us first to experience this love in our hearts that we might have the strength to think about these things. That is a remarkable statement. He's he's saying something here that is remarkably ponderous. We have to go very slowly, which is what we're doing. Last week we went very slowly. This week we're going to go even more slowly. (laughs) And really what I'm going to talk about is simply the dimensions that he gives here. What is the breadth of God's love? What is the height of God's love? What is the depth of God's love? And if it's beyond our knowledge, why is he telling us 
to know these things, right? All of this is very mysterious. Paul wants them, his readers, and us now, who have inherited this book, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and so that we would be strengthened in our inner being by the Holy Spirit, so that we might receive and live in this love. Like we are given mouths to receive bread, we need to be given hearts to receive his love. It's the same. You were given a mouth, and what does that mouth, what does what this having a mouth suggest to us? Well, you're supposed to put things in it, right? It is the gateway to the inner man, right? It's how we take medication, it's how we take food, it's how we take water, it's how we take beer, it's how we take wine. All This is uh, something that receives. And, and because we have it, we understand then we are supposed to receive through it. Well, it's the same with a heart. You have to be given a heart to receive this food. And that's what he, we covered last week. He alone, the Spirit of God, gives you the heart capable of comprehending, of receiving, of feasting upon this reality. That's why you can understand something that is otherwise beyond our knowledge, because the Spirit dwells in our hearts and gives us a mouth to consume this food, that we might nourished, be nourished truly in our hearts by it. Now, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the born-again inner man is now rooted and grounded in love, which gives us the strength to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love for us. These terms, rooted and grounded, as I mentioned last week, are architectural, they're agricultural, coupled with the reference to dimensions. What Paul is saying is that we, God's people, God's dwelling, are capable of understanding the size of God's love that shapes us into God's dwelling, God's people. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Paul wants us to comprehend the size of that building and field. This prayer for comprehension is directly connected to what he had said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. He, right? He's speaking in agricultural terms. He's speaking in architectural terms. He wants us to understand, comprehend the size of the building and the size of the field. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 19, we read there, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, you who are not a people are a people. You who are outside the household are in the household. You are the dwelling. Now, what is the size and shape of this temple? And, and this is fascinating because I almost got massively distracted down this rabbit trail because it turns out if you go all the way through the Bible, we're constantly told the dimensions of the temple. You go back and you're like, okay, let's start pondering the dimensions of the tabernacle. And there's a ton of information about it. Then you go to the Temple of Solomon, and there's a lot of information about exactly its, its height, its depth. They, they speak in these terms. And then the, the prophets are given visions of a temple in heaven, and, and they start going around, and they're, and they're telling us the dimensions of this place. And th- this is something that's in Paul's mind here. He wants you to think of the temple. He wants you to think of God's house. He wants you to think of how big it is if it fits God inside of it. Because the the temples that they see in the visions, the prophets, if you look at the numbers, in in one instance, it actually describes something roughly the size of the actual earth. 
Well, how did they know that? How did they know how do they know it was that big? And what does that even mean, that there's a temple in heaven that we're all going towards that's the size of the earth? Like, that's very mysterious. You could see why someone like me was like, okay, now the sermon's about something else entirely. We're going to start talking about <laughs> widths and shapes. But all of this is in Paul's mind. You are a building. You are here because of God's love. He laid his life down for you. There's no greater love than that. And that love is, is creating a building. It is a field in which the seed of Christ is, is planted, and how big must that field be to hold him? How big must the dwelling place of God be if it holds him and us? God's people, whom he loved enough to die for, are united from all tribes and tongues into a single people, a single dwelling of the triune God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's dwelling is his people. You have received his love, so you are his dwelling place. And this is true for everyone that Christ has died for, everyone that he has brought into himself. We, the dwelling place of the triune God, are now a spring from which his love flows into the world like a flood. Now, how big must his temple be if there is a river flowing out of the center of it that never ends? How big must that well of water in the temple of the Lord? Because that's what it says in Revelation chapter 22. It talks about a temple in heaven from which a river flows that never ends. The, the source of the river is the temple of where God dwells. It says in Revelation 22, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, Ezekiel, I think it was, saw this temple, and he talked about the fact that in the temple, the robe of the Lord, which is supposed to be his glory and beauty, spreads out until it fills the whole place. There's this river flowing out of it that never ends. Along that river are trees from which we draw the healing of the nations. This is who we are. How big must that temple be? How, must, how big must that field of trees be? That's what Paul wants you to comprehend. And immediately when you start thinking about it this way, I'm with what he said. How, how can anyone comprehend the size of this place? The internal dimensions and the external dimensions. Paul's ministry of preaching and building and bending the knee in prayer was directed toward our understanding of this new humanity, this new reality, this hope to which we live and strive and believe. He says in Colossians 1.23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is what he wants. He wants steadfastness. He's saying, listen, you are built upon a foundation that consists of the prophets and the apostles and the Lord Jesus himself. Now, if that's, that's the strength upon which we are built, how high will this tower reach? How high will these walls be? Everything he's doing is, is striving to get us to understand the dwelling in which we live 
and the field in which we work. In Colossians, he goes on later, because in, in that book, this is, a, this is also a theme, just like it is here. He says in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He wants us to be rooted in this. He wants us to be grounded in this. He wants us to have the strength upon which the Lord God will continue to build. Because hasn't it been in the history of the church where there he is building and building and building and one of the floors in the building collapses? And why was that? Because they did not hold on to the original faith. We can go back in history, churches that, that, like the Anglican Church in England, which was at one point faithful, and then all the Anglican bishops in Africa got together and excommunicated all of the Anglicans who live in England, and I say yes and amen, but what happened to that whole floor in God's, in God's temple? It collapsed on itself. And any church that builds on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus, any church that builds on anything else will fall. This is what Jesus said, right? Build your house upon the rock. Right? We understand the dimensions of the place because we, right, this is what the New Testament is. The apostles are telling us what the boundary markers are of these floors that we are building generation by generation in this temple. The triune God promised that he would dwell with his people as their Lord, going all the way back to Moses, and the latter prophets foretold of a greater son of David, the Lord of a new covenant over a new restored humanity that would not be focused on a thin strip of land in Palestine consisting of a single nation, but would consist of all nations covering the whole world. This is expressed each week to us at the table in our midst here where we are fed spiritually in the inward man on the true man from heaven so that our inner man and inner well would be refreshed and renewed. The Lord is here in our midst, held in our hands, taken into ourselves, sustaining us body and soul, heart and mind. And this meal spreads over the face of the earth. Now, the first generation of Christians, where did they celebrate the Lord's Supper? Did they, did they eat it in China? Did they eat it here? No, and, and so here we go with baskets of bread and cups of wine, just like the apostles did in Jesus' day, carrying this food to the ends of the earth, feeding nation after nation. There's no end to the amount of food in, in the Lord's household. Every week we come here, it's here again. Every week we come here, it's here again. If we plant another church, we take it there, and we have even... And you're like, didn't you guys run out? Don't you have to feed your church? This is the meal marching to the end of the... Right? The table around which we gather, leading God's armies out of the four corners of the earth, because this is all his. It's his temple. It's his dwelling place. It's his field. It's all his. God's people are a big field. God's people are a big building. And it's hard for us to comprehend the dimensions of it. Andrew Lincoln, one commentator on the book of Ephesians, said, Love is the soil in which believers are to be rooted and grow the foundation upon which they are to be built. That's what Paul is telling us. Comprehend the dimensions of God's love because that 
is your mission. That is what you're building on. That is your source of hope and joy. That is your source of strength. That is your source of everything. Now, Paul wants us to comprehend the size of the building in which we are being made a part. He wants us to comprehend the size of the field, and so he mentions the dimensions of God's love. He tells us what they are. And the first is the breath. The breath. I'm trying to hit that D every time when I say this word, but I can't. The breath of his love, the width, right? How wide is it? And this is something that he doesn't just pick at random. The Lord spreads the full breath of his wings over his people like a protective mother hen. This is always what he does. Moses says of God's protection of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11 and 12, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. This is what Moses says of Israel. He was like an egg in a nest, and there was an eagle whose wings were spread over protectively. Now, I don't know if you know very much about birds, but what do mother birds look like when they're in the nest? Right? And that's Israel, and God is the bird. That's the breath of his love. The psalmist declares in Psalm 91, verse 4 and 6, 4 through 6, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. And what you have there is what? You have warfare, you've got sickness, you've got illness, and and no matter how far the, the problems spread, there are wings that cover it. We are never outside of, of, the, of the breath of God's loving wings. Never. And I know <laughs> that we often feel that we are. And this is why Paul wants us to know that no matter how far the sin spreads, no matter how far the misery spreads, there is something wider still. David sings in Psalm 57.1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge to the storms of destruction pass. Jesus says of Israel in Luke 13.34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing They did not want his protection. They did not want his wings. They thought in the shadow of his wings was the darkness of night. Now, is he saying there, I can't, right? Is he saying that there is a limit to how wide he can spread his wings? No, he's saying that we didn't want it. This overspreading of God's loving wings is the answer to the breath of man's spreading sin. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. God has since the fall been willing and able to cover the effects of sin. No matter how far it spreads, no matter how much there's the, the muck and the filthiness and the suffering spreads, there is something that spreads further than that. In Genesis 3.21, right at the beginning, we're given this metaphor, and it says there, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And in, in, in clothing them, they enclosed all of humanity. Because they make this point elsewhere, right? They, they make this point that Abraham, or the, the sons of Abraham were tithing to Melchizedek because they were the seed inside of Abraham when he was tithing. 
And they make this argument. And I think you could apply this here. When he clothed Adam and Eve, he was showing them not only that those two, their sins were forgiven, but he was clothing all of humanity. I can overspread this sin. And we know that it spread, right? We know it went from Adam to Cain and Abel and on and on and on. And then there was a flood that covered the earth and, and on and on and on this decay and this decrepitness went. And what we see right there at the beginning is that God was capable of covering it all. The covering of God's loving wings is greater than the spread of man's sin. Paul is saying that the breath of heaven's cleansing is more far-reaching than man's filth. The prophet summarizes Yahweh's covenant love for Israel in Ezekiel 16.8. This is how the prophets understood what God had done for Israel. It says there, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. God covers. Paul quotes the psalmist in Rome, Romans 4, 4 through 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now you think about your own life. What hasn't your sin touched? It, it, right? If, if, if every sin you ever committed against every person, every atrocious thing was, was highlighted like a glowy ball... Couldn't we follow this trail of you sinning and it just spreads all over the place? I'd have to get in a car and follow around the dots and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going down into Seattle and I'm going into Pierce County and I have, in that time you were over in eastern Washington. You're like, how far did this spread, this sin of yours? And, 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 and no matter how far you could spread it, you could get in your car and you could drive east and you could sin every second that you're going and, and then you could just wrap the earth over and over and over and over and over again. You still would not spread sin further than Christ is able to cover it with his blood. That is what he is saying. There, there is a breath that answers a breath. And those of us who see sin and wickedness, and this, right? I mean, it was like, I saw this meme earlier today, and it's President Biden, and he has all these buttons in front of him, and it's like, which war is he going to pick, right? Iran, Russia, Texas, <laughs> He's got, he's got all these options. And right now, doesn't it seem like things have gotten a little out of control? And you're like, who is driving this semi-truck through the universe, right? Who is in charge of this? Look at this corruption. Could, could, could the problem spread any further? And, right? and, and I keep thinking, no, this is about as crazy as it's going to get. Something's got to happen now. And then more stuff happens. And, and it spreads further and further. Now, what overreaches all of that? Right? God who stands outside of time, God who is beyond the, the size of the cosmos, right? everything lives, moves, and has its being in Christ, he, is, is, he covers everything. There's nothing that he cannot touch, nothing that he cannot see, nothing that he cannot do, and even now he's in control of everything. This will poise and stay the soul, John Bunyan says. It will relieve and support the soul in and under those many misgivings and desponding thoughts under which where are subject when afflicted with the apprehensions of sin and the abounding nature of it. It wears us down. We, we just feel like we're being tread upon and tread upon and dragged from one end of anxiety to the other. And, and what's greater than all of that is the love of God. If love covers a multitude of sins, as the, prophet, or as the apostle says, what will the self-sacrificial 
love of God do to the corruption that man spreads? Right? If, if you, a human being, can cover a multitude of sins with a little love, what would <laughs> the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ not cover? The breath of Christ's love swallows up the veil of death and covers us in life, just as Yahweh clothed Adam and Eve. Now, we come next to the length of God's love. Sin separates. That's what it always does. It divides us from God. It divides us from one another. Sin opens a chasm wider even than the creator-creature distinction because there is a distinction between God and us. There was already a chasm between him and Adam that God had to cross over because a creature cannot access God in heaven by himself. So even when Adam and Eve are in the garden and everything's copacetic, there is still a chasm. And then sin enters into the world and creates an additional divide that is even greater than that. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Right? The, the, this is something that unbelievers talk about all the time. They talk about praying. He doesn't hear them. Okay? God does not just hear prayers because prayers is, prayer, praying is a thing he likes. So if you know unbelievers who really get into a tight spot and they're like, you know what, I'm going to pray. I'm not usually, right, this is a trope in movies. I'm not usually a praying man, God. And up there on the other end of the phone is nobody. He does not care to hear them. His face is hidden from them. The chasm is too great. Now, if you're forgiven your sins and you're in Christ, there is the mouth of Christ right in the ear of God. There he is saying, okay, this is what's going on with our child, and this is what we need to do, right? This is the comfort he needs because he doesn't understand what's happening to him right now, and we're going to give him an extra bit of strength through the Holy Spirit to survive this, even though he's not going to understand what's happening. Now, that transfer is going on on our behalf all the time. But for the world, for the fallen sinner, there is a chasm that they cannot cross, Christ experienced even this separation when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even he was separated from the Father. Now Bunyan wrote, this is the state sometimes of the godly, and that only with reference, I'm sorry, to their being removed by persecutors from appointments and gospel seasons, right? Persecutors come and remove us from God, we, we are driven from the comfort of the Lord. We are driven from his temple. We're driven from his field because of persecutions. All we want to do is get back. We feel like he's, he's far from us. In our fear, we run away and we try to hide. Our delight and our desire is to see his face, but also in reverence to our faith and hope in God, even those who are close to God feel far from him. Jesus himself, how much closer can the, the second person of the Trinity be to the first person of the Trinity? And yet on the cross, he felt a separation. Because what I'm not talking about is simply that, oh, okay, you sin and you separate yourself from God. Sin is in the world and it separates us. It separates brothers and sisters. It separates husbands and wives. It separates parents and children. And where do you go when, when you feel that separation, right? You're, you may be sitting there physically so close to your spouse that you're touching, but you, you are like on two planets. 
You're sitting there in a row with your children, but they couldn't be farther from you. How often does the sin and trial and circumstance bring about this separation? And in that separation, where do we go? What do we do? Is the long arm of God too short? Is his forgiveness too little? Is his reach too small? Sometimes with David we ask from Psalm 10, verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Because haven't you ever gotten into trouble and you're looking around for the Lord and you know what you don't sense at all is him? You're like, I don't understand. I mean, I understand. Okay, man was born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's what Job says. So here I am in some trouble that you made me for. And where are you? We feel this way. We feel this way. Even the redeemed at times think themselves bereft of God's favor beyond the reach of his concern, beyond the reach of his mercy. And to our doubts, God responds with Isaiah 50, verse 2. Is my hand shortened? That it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Because oftentimes, those things that are supposed to drive us further into his arms are the things that make us feel like he's not there at all. Because what, I mean, <laughs> does Job feel close to God? He has tons of questions. He's suffered a ton. And he's standing there, and the end of the book is God revealing himself. God was never far away. God was right there during all of it. He heard everything. He saw everything. He did all of those things to Job. Was there a greater good than Job understanding it? Was there a greater good right, that was going on in the life of Job and in the life of all of us where sometimes these circumstances, where they, they happen to us so that we might see just how long God's arm is? Paul says in Romans 10.6, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Have you ever been sitting there around the table with your family and you think, you know what we could use right now is some Christ. Who could go up into heaven and drag him down here? Like he's a kid who won't get up to go to school. Right? How many times have you been there with your, <laughs> okay, uh, boy, go get your brothers. Get them and come here. And doesn't it feel oftentimes like we're like, who's going to go up into heaven and bring him down? And we turn to the scriptures. Did, did Jonah outrun the reach of God, right? God says, go this direction. He goes the opposite direction. And lo and behold, God's there too. And then he goes down into the boat. Turns out God's there too. Then they chuck him into the ocean. He sinks down. He says to the roots of the mountains. And lo and behold, who's there? And then in order to rescue him, he gets swallowed by a giant fish. And lo and behold, who's down there in the guts of the fish? We cannot fathom the length of God's arm. It's longer than our fall in sin, longer than the distance between the exalted throne of heaven and the womb of a virgin. Measure that distance for me. Right? You, you Climb up to heaven, go see the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, and measure the distance between that and Mary's womb. Can you? Do we have even the ability to comprehend such a distance? And yet his arm is longer than that. 
David knew the length of God's arm. Turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. This is what David says in verses 7 to 10. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right arm shall hold me. Now, we cannot go any length of distance that that is longer than the arm of God. Now, why is it that we sometimes feel like he's not there? Now, now that is a different question altogether. Right? And, and, And Jesus in his ministry... Remember when he was eating with his, his disciples and there was a woman there who wanted his attention and she was like interrupting them and interrupting them and finally the disciples were like, could you tell this woman to go away? Right, he tells a parable about a judge and there's this woman who wants the judge's attention and, he com- and she comes and comes and comes and comes and finally the judge is like, listen, I'm tired of this woman, I'm just going to do what she wants. Now, is it possible, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that that's what's going on. Because you don't feel his presence does not mean he's not there. Just because you feel like you have at last gone beyond his reach, it does not mean that you have. It means that something else is going on. Something about you and your soul, something about you and him, something about you and some other issue in your life, and that is for you and him to work out together. But what Paul is saying is that we cannot comprehend the length of his arm. And this theme is carried into the next dimension, which is the depth of God's love. And let me tell you, I, didn't, I was like, well, after that, what do I have to say about this? Because it seems like the same thing. But actually, this is the wondrous world of Paul. He understands the scriptures better than any, any other human being that ever lived, in my opinion, except the Lord Jesus himself. Because what he's telling us here is something that is, is as old as Moses. David describes life as a descent either into a deep valley of depression or a deep mucky pit. We start here. David understood this. He says, well, you know, sometimes I sin and I, and, I, and I get in this muddy pit and I dig down into the muddy pit and I'm really deep in this muddy pit. And it seems like I'm going to suffocate. I'm so far down in this muddy pit. Other times he says to his own soul, why are you cast down my soul? Psalm 69 says, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me, which was also Jonah's line. He he felt like he had gone so far deep into the ocean that he was beyond the reach of God. David tells his soul to take hope in God. In Psalm 69, he says, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. God's love is deeper than the dark valleys of the soul that we experience. It's deeper than the pit of muck. And this is what we hear from Moses. Moses was talking about a prophecy that Joseph gave over his sons back at the end of Genesis In chapter 49, he blesses each of his sons. Moses took up one of those blessings, and he's talking to all of Israel, and this is what he says. He says in Deuteronomy 33, 13, And of Joseph, he said, "Blessed, Blessed by the Lord be his land, 
with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath. The deep that crouches beneath. Well, what is he telling us there? Do you want to hear it? It's actually quite remarkable. You can debase yourself a great deal. All of you can, right? Look at the world. Look at what human beings do to themselves. Look at what they, you can debase yourself to an extreme that is hard to fathom at times. And, and this, right, I read headlines and I think I am never going, like, why are they telling us this? I don't need to know this dark thing and I will never tell my wife this story. I, I was reading a book where St. Brendan was being told something so evil that he threw up from the story. And, and, and this got me, like, we can go really low. And yet the humility of God goes lower. He crouches even below the distance we are able to debase ourselves. Right? The greatness of our sin, if you think about it that way, is still, right? How low can you go? We can go pretty low. We are phenomenal at going low. And you go all, as low as you possibly can. And he will crouch even lower than that. And that's what the incarnation is about. Because it's not enough that he, he descended, right? What, how far did he, was he willing to go in, in, in shamelessness? In, right? How far was he willing to go in, in dishonor and in in, in misuse in order to have us? The whole time he's walking around on the earth, he's like, oh, we, you guys want to go lower? Let's go lower. You guys want to go lower? I can crouch that low too. Oh, you're going to nail me to this cross now. I, I can go that low. Oh, you want to take me even further than the... I, I don't even feel the Father's presence with me. I can go even beyond that. Oh, I, right? I rise from the grave, and I will go down even into Hades. And I will preach the good news to the people there. And he's like, is this it? Is this as far as you guys can go? Because I can go lower still. There is no sin so low, so decrepit, so debased, that he cannot crouch beneath it and lift us up. John Bunyan said, this, therefore, is worthy of the consideration of all sinking souls, of souls that feel themselves descending into the pit. Consider that underneath this deep whereinto they are descending, there lieth the delivering mercy crouching to catch them and to save them from sinking forever. Now, don't give in to the despairing descent. Do not fear the pit of filthy sin. Do not worry about the dark night of the soul. It will come because there is something that, whose reach is longer, who can crouch lower. And this is all the more remarkable when we next consider the height of Christ's love. Right now, are you getting a sense of the size of the building? Are you getting a sense of the size of the field here? It's bigger than anything we can comprehend, and that is the love of God for us. As there is a breadth and a length and a depth in the mercy and grace of God through Christ towards his people, so there is also a height. Now, in the Old Testament, there were a lot of tall obstacles. At every turn, Noah had to face giants in Genesis 6. David faced the giant in 1 Samuel 17, something much taller than him. Ten of Israel's spies came back and reported in Numbers chapter 13. This is what they said. We are not able to go up against the people. 
We can't go up against the people. They're too high for us, for they are stronger than we are. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. <laughs> and the first thing that he does, right, when he finally walks with them for 40 years in the desert, then they come to the promised land, what's the first thing that they have to overcome? The height of the walls of Jericho. And, 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 and Joshua says, okay, listen, I got these plans for a ladder, and we are going to climb higher than this wall. No, 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 no. Neither did he say, I have this shovel, and we are going to dig under it. No, 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 no. They were given trumpets, and they were told to march around it. And at the blast of the trumpet, what happened? The walls fell. There are heights, there are obstacles, but none of them are as high as the love of God. And all these high obstacles arrayed against them and us that oppose our advancement in holiness and righteousness and purity and joy are overcome by the high and holy God. The Father has set his Son higher than any, in any other person, any other creature, any other aspect of the cosmos. There is nothing higher than the Son of God. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And where is that? Right? It's not in Jerusalem. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There are heights, there are obstacles, and what is higher still? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, like their Lord Satan, the forces of darkness cannot rise to challenge the Lord God, and they too will be thrown down just like their master. There is a chief of the dark forces, and what happened to him? If you turn with me to Isaiah 14, Isaiah chapter 14, we're told what happened to the angel of light who tried to rise up to the heights of God. In chapter 14, starting in verse 12, we read, this is what, um, yeah, I'm trying to, okay, so this is what Isaiah is saying to Satan. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the, the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Because Jesus says this remarkable thing that most of us do not understand. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, he has sent out his disciples, the 70. They have come back with reports of how they're um, slaying people in the spirit with their preaching, and they're, they're driving out demons. And Jesus himself says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Because there was a power higher than us, wasn't there? We lost the garden, and who did God put in the place of, of man in the garden to protect it? An angel. And when that happened, this is a long story, we entered into the age of angels. And this is why in Hebrews it says Jesus descended lower than the angels, because the angels were in charge, because man wasn't. And he wrested this world back from the dark angels who controlled it. And this is why, as he sees his people going around, 
doing what he has commanded them to do, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And when, he, when, and when he sent monks north into Germany, and when he sent them into Gaul, and when he sent them into Ireland, every time his people went out and obeyed him, and the kingdom spread, and the gospel was preached, and people believed, he could say again, I saw another demon fall like, like lightning. I saw the principalities and powers, one after the other, falling like lightning from the sky, because there is a height. We operate with the spirit of a God who's higher than the forces that are arranged against us. Right? And what are they called in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2? They're called the principalities and powers of the air. We dwell on the earth, and above us are these powers that, that resist God, that hate him, that hate his work, and that stand against us. And Bunyan says, by these powers we are tempted and sifted and threatened and opposed and undermined. Also by these are, we, we experience snares and pits, holes, and whatnot are made and laid for us if, peradventure, by something we may be destroyed. They're always trying, right? They're always trying to get us. If you, if you want to understand this a little bit better, read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Screwtape is a demon writing letters to an under-demon <laughs> who's, who's trying to capture souls away from God. And it, by the end of the book, you see Screwtape fall like lightning. There is a height to answer a height. John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Right? We here under the sun look around, and all we can see is what we can see under the sun. But there is one who has come from above the sun, who is above all, and says, listen, I understand what it looks like. I understand what you're experiencing, but I'm above all, and I have overcome the world. My spirit dwells with you. I dwell with you. My love is yours. Go forth in this world and fear nothing, for I have overcome it. Now, just, oh, well, one more, Colossians 2.15. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. Jesus triumphed over, overpowering, overawing, overruling Bunyan says there is a height, an infinitely overtopping height in the mercy and goodness of God for us against these forces. And before we get to the conclusion, there's one more height that we have to overcome. It is the height that we raise against God in our own defense. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it's not enough that we have these obstacles out in the world to overcome, but we raise obstacles within our heart. We raise a height against this height of God to defend ourselves from having to obey him, to submit to him. We try to overtop the clear revelation of both nature and scripture opposing and contradicting with high views of our own logic, our own reason, our own subtlety, our own wit, we raise this defense against God's glory and against our obedience to him. But we must take Paul's exhortation to heart from Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The first thing that some of us have to overcome in Christ are those lofty opinions of our own. Right? How often have you heard the word preached? How often have you been in a circumstance where you hear the clear revelation of God and you think, uh, 
submission, obedience, dying to myself. And what we do is we raise all kinds of lofty opinions about why we don't have to obey that. Right? So we, we aren't even getting out into the world to face principalities and powers of the earth because we're still dealing with the arguments in our own hearts. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, I'm with C.S. Lewis on this because it sounds super unpastoral. But C.S. Lewis once asked, is there, is, there a, is there a question, is there any question we could ask of God? Right? right? Can he make a rock he can't lift? And, and his, his comment is, well, you know, some, some questions are just too dumb for God. It's not that he couldn't answer them. He just, he's like, that question is too dumb for me. I, I'm not going to. How could there be evil in the world if you're good, right? And, and so, like, I understand people suffer, and there's a lot to apologetics, but sometimes I'm just like, listen, you are, you are way above your pay rate here, okay? You, <laughs> you are up in the lofty highs with Plato and, and the Apostle Paul talking about stuff that you're never going to even remotely understand the terms, let alone the conclusions. And, and, and the pride of man is, is an ongoing problem. And sometimes I just like, listen, your question... It, I, I can understand why you're asking it. It's just too dumb to answer. So here's a Bible, okay? And, and, let, and, and let it ask questions of you, opposed to you constantly raising these arguments against the living God. Now, once we overcome overall that height in Christ with our humility by taking the low place like he did, then we start getting into the world and we're overcoming things outside of ourselves. That's what he wanted. Die to yourself and follow me. Because he put himself to death so that he could go out and get something done out there in the world where there's real sin and suffering to be dealt with. Ask the questions. Get the answers. But doubt your doubts and consider the fact that perhaps sometimes you're asking things like Job that aren't going to be answered. Now, all of this is fascinating, and next week we're going to take it up again because in Job, chapter 11, verse 7 and 9, he, Job says something very interesting. He says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Shehol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Paul himself says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Now that ought to humble us. That ought to get us to sit down and, and puzzle these things out and take the wheat and start working on, <laughs> on this so that we can actually turn, turn it into some actual bread that's going to nourish us. Because how, we're told that we can't comprehend these things, and yet he's praying that we would comprehend these things. Now, I don't know about you, but after the, the amount of time that I've been standing here doing this, I think I understand these dimensions better. And, and by that, I can tell you it's unfathomable. I get exactly what Paul is saying. I, it's much clearer to me that it's too big for me to understand. And, and in that is wisdom, and in that is humility, and in that is strength. 
Because I, I don't know how many things in this world defy my logic, defy my ability to understand. Even my, within my own heart, it's deceitful above all things. And yet I know that no matter how puzzling the puzzle is, there is a greater puzzle. Right? No matter how high the obstacle seems, there is a height to answer it. No matter how wide the problems and the sin seem, there is something wider than that. No matter how far we will go down, there is something deeper than that. And, and these dimensions, this is what he wants us to, he wants us to be quiet and stand before this God and say, th- th- that, the love, this love that you're describing by the power of your spirit is going to dwell in my heart. Right? I know the dimensions of my heart. I know the dimensions, of, and even for me, a guy with a slightly larger size than most people, even in this, the, the love of God can fit. Bunyan wrote, the greatness of God, of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that, if rightly considered, which will support the spirit of those of his people who are frightened with the greatness of their adversaries. For here is a greatness against a greatness. Pharaoh was great, but God more great, more great in power, more great in wisdom, more great every way for the help of his people, wherein they dealt proudly. He was above them. These words, therefore, take in for this people the great God who in his immensity and infinite greatness is beyond all things. And yet we're told here by Paul, by the power of his spirit, he will dwell within us. Now, if, if, if this is what we're talking about, what can we not overcome in his name? If this is what we're talking about, what will overcome us? If we are in him, what love can separate us from him? What distance can separate us from him? What, what depth, what width is greater than this love he has for us? Oppositions are found in the Christian life so that we might see, that we might know the dimensions of this love. That there is a breath that answers a breath, a length to answer a length, a depth to answer a depth. Psalm 56, 1 through 2. You tell me if this sounds like you. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And doesn't it feel that, that way? And later in the same Psalm, verse 13, this is always how it goes goes with David. He has the questions, but he, but he has the answers. Verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, what happened to all that despair from the beginning? He talks about this in Psalm 77 as well. He's, he's considering the earth, David is, and he's considering everything that's going on. He's considering all the wicked people. He's considering all the suffering, all the de- degradation. He's considering all of these things and how the righteous are winning and how the righteous are wealthy and fat and sleek. And then you know what he does? He says, but I remembered myself, and I went to the temple of the Lord, and I worshiped. And that is what this prayer is about that we would come and fall silent before the face of God, the one who knows more than us, who reaches further than us, who's greater than everything that stands against us, the one to whom we are called to serve. And, and if we just ponder him, the dimensions of his love, the size of the field in which Christ is the seed, what, how much fruit is going to come out of that field? If the, if, if the foundation is Jesus and the, and the next level is the apostles, how high might that building reach? 
as you are placed in it, and you are placed in it, and you are placed in it. And, and the tower goes up and up. How far is it going to reach? It's, uh, it... This is the God who loves you. This is the God who dwells in your hearts. This is the God who's concerned with you, not just your creaturely comforts, but what you're becoming ultimately. And so there are, op- there are obstacles, there are oppositions, and it's for us to know the God that we serve, not to fear the things themselves. They reveal more and more and more about this God that we serve. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, um, <clears throat> for the Apostle Paul who's, who was praying for us the recipients of these words, that we might comprehend in our hearts this love that is in our hearts, that we might know the dimensions of your love, that we might know how great you are, that we might be humbled, that we might be trusting, that we might put our faith anew in you. We thank you, and we, and we are here, Lord, to worship you, and we are now going to, to rise and raise our voices, Lord, as, as we are ought, and we are going to delight in this wonderful feast that you have provided for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.